Hello and welcome to Creative Conversations, a podcast from the China Australia Writing Centre. I'm Liz Bursky. The centre is a research and creative partnership between Curtin University in Perth and Fudan University in Shanghai. Creative Conversations features writers, academics, and artists discussing writing across cultures, with a particular focus on the promotion of Chinese writing in Australia and Australian writing in China. It provides a forum for the exchange of ideas and the development of cross-cultural understanding and relationships through research and creative projects. The four episodes in this series were recorded in October 2017 at Creative Conversations. Looking forward, looking back. This public event was held at the Esplanade Hotel in Fremantle, Western Australia. Over the course of the day, four panels discussed problems of positioning, distance, and perspective in relation to the past and the future. Proceedings on the day were recorded by David Limay from ABC Radio National. Our fourth and final episode in the series, Looking Forward, Looking Back, is on age. It's presented by Geraldine Blake, and I speak with the novelist Brooke Davis and fiction writer and memoirist Beth Yap. We discuss the rapidly aging global population and how writers present older characters, whether they're represented often enough, and how gender and diversity affect these representations. And what about older writers themselves? What does it mean to sustain a writing practice over many years? So let me introduce you to these wonderful writers on the panel. On my far left, we have Brooke Davis, who completed her PhD in creative writing at Curtin University in 2013. Her first novel, Lost and Found, has won several awards, with the rights being sold into 25 countries and translated into 20 languages. She is now a full-time writer, but she still works one day a week in a very nice bookstore in Mount Lawley. And next to Brooke is Beth Yap, who was born in Malaysia and moved to Sydney in 1984. She is an award-winning author of fiction and non-fiction, including a memoir called Eat First, Talk Later. Such a great title that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, a, and has recently released a collection of short fiction, The Red Pearl, and other stories. Beth teaches creative writing at the University of Sydney, and on my left, I'm sure needs no introduction. The wonderful Liz Bursky, who is the author of nine novels, the latest being The Woman Next Door, and a number of non-fiction books, including Remember Me. Liz is an associate professor, and no, I've missed a line. Is associate professor in the School of Media, Culture, and Creative Arts at Curtin University, and the senior fellow of the China Australia Writing Centre. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. So, Liz, let's start with you. I think your book, The Woman Next Door, should be compulsory reading, as you so skillfully portray a group of people over 60, all facing their ageing with varying degrees of confidence. And I'd just like to read a little bit about Joyce because she's perhaps the most optimistic, and you sum it up so perfectly here. Joyce has the feeling of her life opening up to all sorts of possibilities. That getting old no longer feels as though it will be a slow and steady process of diminishment and loss. So that's such a positive way to regard ageing. Is this how we should all be thinking? Oh well, that would be a very sweeping statement to make, wouldn't it?、Um, <laughs> uh, I suppose that statement is basically what I'm what I'm trying to say, really.、Uh, that there are lots of very negative images about ageing, and particularly about ageing women. And so, when I set out to write fiction, I I, I wanted to write positively about older people, older women. Like the women I see around me, my friends, my colleagues, my friends' friends, people in the street.、Um, I think that the portrayals of older women in all forms of media are pretty sad, really.、Um, there's not much positivity about it, and that as you get older, if you don't see images of people or read images of people、um, having interesting, positive lives. As they get older, that's 
that's quite a weird feeling and it's the feeling I had when I decided to start writing like this was that well where do I fit in this that it's about um, it's about a thing that sometimes referred to as representational flattery that when all the images around you and there's so many these days of um, of young people young white people particularly glamorous young white people um, and that seems to be the dominant image. And for older women, it is, uh, it's not, it doesn't seem to include them. If they're included, they're usually negative stereotypes, you know, grumpy old women or miserable old bag or grumpy mother-in-law or you know, those sorts of things. Um, and you, I looked around me and thought, well, where are the stories about women like the women I know? I've always read those sort of books. As a, as a teenager growing up in England, I read those books by women, about women, about women's lives. It's how I learned what to be, how to be a woman and what I could expect. And so when I got into my late 50s and I couldn't find anything to read about the women I know, like me, um, I thought my only salvation is to write about it. <laughs> uh, and that's what I tried to do because I was really sick of standing in the queue behind people, women in Maya, um, groaning in their early 50s about how old they were and how terrible that was and how life was going to be over after 50. And I want to punch them and say, <laughs> come on, get your act together. You know, old age, yeah, there's things that go wrong. There's things that are very hard, but at the same time, it can be positive. I've always looked forward to getting old. Um, I've always been positive about ageing. I think it's served me well. I have to say now I'm 73. I, you know, I do have days when I don't like it that much. But um, you know, I'd like to have a younger body with my head, current head on top <laughs> of it. But I do think that if you think positively about ageing, you're going to have a better time anyway, even if it is tough. Well, so, down to I the suppose, attitude. yes, I am saying that. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good. <laughs> I forgot what the question was there. But it was basically the absence of interesting and realistic older women as the central characters in Australian fiction that made you start writing novels featuring those characters. And as your target audience, I salute you and thank you for that. But I wonder, was that a hard sell to the publishers? Um, well... The, my first novel went to two publishers that knocked it back. It was a book called Gang of Four. It got knocked back, and then on the third publisher, it got knocked back, but she actually told me why. And what she said was, this is a great story, um, but it's full of too much feminist polemic. <laughs> and as soon as she had said that, I, knew, I could see it. So I rewrote the whole thing and then it wasn't difficult after that. Mm. The next publisher it went to gave me a two-book contract and oh, so, so it, they just, it, it just, that was the be most useful thing anyone's ever said to me about writing. Yes, that is mm. interesting. So they acknowledged then that there was a need for stories about older, interesting women having interesting, rewarding lives. Yeah. Excellent. So as Liz has said, we live in a youth-obsessed society with in denial about ageing. So Beth, you come from a culture that actually reveres the elderly and they are respected for their wisdom and so on. Is does, there's as much of the youth obsession and the fight against ageing there or is that a contradictory thing? Um, I, th I think when I grew up that was the case. I, I think it's different now. Um, so certainly when I grew up, um, you know, our grandparents were people to be listened to. Um, they were the storytellers, so, you know, my grandmother uh, on one side, on the Thai side, uh, was a fabulous storyteller. Um, and, you know, and I remember actually us sitting down and listening to her. I mean, actually listening. Um, so this was the 60s and uh, seven, early 70s, you know, uh, not that much TV. I can remember, you know, two hours of TV a day. Uh, and I remember when TV came in, actually. Um, and so, you know, so the idea that um, the passing down of culture and knowledge uh, came from the, um, you know, the older generation. Parents weren't around that much. 
you know, too busy. Um, I really think uh, things have changed uh, quite a lot. Um, you know, there's a kind of flourishing of old folks' homes in Malaysia. Ah, that <laughs> is interesting. Um, aged care, cent you know, centers, uh, which were not the case. Uh, you know, so the elderly lived with uh, family uh, quite often. Um, I think that there definitely is a privileging of young, uh, you know, an, an idea of, of youth um, and how we need uh, to, you know, it's, it's almost as though we are everything, like, you know, our, our culture, the things we read, the kind of news, the advertising, um, is geared towards telling us that, you know, aging is a bad thing. And I've often thought, you know, that's quite strange. Um, I always wanted to get older. Uh, you know, I always wanted to be called auntie. And people stand up and give me their seat in the bus. <laughs> it still hasn't happened. You have to have crutches, you know, before you get that. Um, but so, you know, and, and maybe I always felt out of sync. You know, I always felt like a really old child. You know, so listening to what people have been saying today, it's almost as though, you know, we, we need to be what we were. Um, but... I, you know, have the child in you, be adventurous, be curious, and you know, those are the kind of landmarks of uh, what it is to be young, and we mm. need to preserve those things. But I think, you know, the, 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 the obverse is, you know, also there, you know, because I always felt like um, in my childishness and, and play, there was always something, there was always something old. You know, and, uh, and I felt like that, that waiting for the future to happen, uh, you know, because of the elders who were in my life at that time, you know, I, I felt like it was already there and it was something that I had a right to. You had to grow into the person you were meant to be. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> on the last panel on childhood, uh, Shai Jha was saying that she kept a diary because she wanted to remember what it was like to be a child, which I thought was lovely. And Brooke Davis, I'm wondering if that's something you did when you were a child. Firstly, hello. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, absolutely. And I really identified with everything you were saying because I actually used to write about little insects as well. So I've got my opening, the, the very first journal entry I ever took was of following a snail around the backyard. And it's the most uninteresting <laughs> story. But I was so compelled. You can see how enthusiastic I am about this bloody snail. It's amazing. And I wish I still had that feeling about snails. <laughs> But do you find going back and reading your youthful diaries, does that immediately take you back to that memory of what it was to be that child? I think mostly what it does is make me know that at every other age I was at, I was a bit of a tool. Like that's mostly <laughs> what that does. It's, it's lovely. It's lovely to have the record. Um, but I, I don't, I think, I think I feel the same. I feel like it's, I still feel very close to some kind of childishness within myself. I don't, I, I and I feel that way about about aging as well. When I when I think about my nan, who I was very close to, who died a couple of years ago, I used to think that I, d I just kind of at, at one stage just recognised that she was she still felt like a child in there somewhere. I remember seeing there's, there was this moment when I was showing her a picture of her mum, and she hadn't seen a picture of her mum for for years. I don't think she hadn't even thought to kind of look at one. And the look that came over her face that I just knew that that she just sort of said, "Oh, mum," and I I'm like, "Oh yeah, she's a daughter. My my nan's a." daughter and she and I could see just right in there there was a really deep sense of, of she was just right there she was a child again so quickly um, and I think it's a, it's a complex state to be that the elderly state because it's also kind of constructed as a as a kind of second childhood as well that in that decline or that losing of um, of awareness in in some ways, but I I don't know I there's something about my my nan and the way she approached life that that really inspired me in that way that made me 
I think more than my own journals, she was someone who kind of always reminded me to to keep close to that way of being. My nan was someone who had a kind of stunningly tragic life, just stunningly tragic. Um, lived till she was 92, but still in amongst the, the crazy kind of tragedy of her life, she was just this total just joy bubble constantly and maybe that socialization with with women we're kind of taught to make sure that everyone around us is is feeling really great at our own expense particularly in that era but she she taught me that you can you can kind of do both things um yeah so she was highly influential in that way that's certainly a valuable lesson. While we're talking about grandmothers, Beth, can I just ask you about the grandmother in uh, your novel, The Crocodile Fury? Uh, the narrator in there says, my grandmother is a believer in... Oh, no, that's the wrong one. Sorry. <laughs> the grandmother gives her an amulet to wear whenever she goes to school because she says, it's there, I'll reach the end of my second life cycle. She also says that her grandmother is old now. She has lived almost 14 turns of a woman's life cycle. So can you tell us about these life cycles? Ah, um, so I was reading the Chinese book of symbolism <laughs> and numbers. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, so the kind of the, the cycles are seven. So uh, 14 turns of seven, which I, I can't count now, but... Um, so it's, it's to do with, um, it's been a long time since I've read that book, actually. So, um, and this is something about age. <laughs> and, um, so it's, it's about, um, you know, those, um, the kind of the vibration of seven, I guess, you know, not, not just for Chinese cultures, but for others, um, other cultures as well. So certain markers happen. Um, and um, it was a way of talking about this kind of cyclical um, kind of um, experiences that, you know, are passed down and kind of experienced uh, over and over um, again. Um, and I'm not answering your question very well. It's fine. No, it just seems really intriguing. I thought it might be something specific to that particular culture. So that is an interesting answer. That but grandmother. One the, as I was listening to Brooke just now, um, when you were saying that, you know, the, the similarity between childhood and, um, you know, being old, um, is that you know the elderly become childlike? Mm. So this grandmother in uh, in the Crocodile Fury actually starts off as an you know the elder with all the wisdom to be passed down, and then progressively becomes um, you know and it's shown. And I'm sorry, she's a grumpy old lady. And very strict and very you know, but kind of having a reason for why she puts the granddaughter through the mill, mm. you know, because there is some purpose that uh, the, the granddaughter doesn't quite understand, you know, which, and makes her memorize all sorts of um, spells and, you know, stories um, which she thinks will be useful. Um, but I was thinking, you know, and so this grandmother starts off, um, you know, having a lot of knowledge and then regresses mm. into almost a childlike state uh, by the end of it. And I was thinking, you know, you were saying that you know, maybe children and, um, and uh, old people are always thought to be the same because, you know, it's like they, they lose awareness uh, of, you know, all of the, the, the milestones that you go through to get there. But, it, you know, as you lose your memory. But maybe it's also something about losing agency, mm -hmm. you know, so that you, you know, it's something to do with powers of, you know, structures of power that when you actually lose uh, the ability to, um, you know, decide what's good for you and what you'd like to do and how you spend your day, um, what is the, you know, what is the rebellion? You know, we talked before about useful rebellion. Um, you know, what is the rebellion that you can do when you lose that agency except to be like a child? Mm. Mm. and resist in the kind of, you know, the, the ways that you, 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 in the end, you know, the, your, your body is the only thing that you can resist with and your voice. Um, yeah, that, that's a pretty bleak um, <laughs> vision of us. <laughs> I imagine myself as a kung fu fighting grandmother. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Do you think there's a kind of freedom in that? In, in, that, in that losing, losing of awareness? Is there a freedom in that, in the way that 
that there's kind of that children are can kind of constructed as free in those early stages of maybe being pre-social awareness maybe there's like a freedom in being post-social awareness or not being in those positions of of power or expectation yeah i mean i love what um liz one of the i think it's joyce uh mm. who thinks about being blunt in her you know about being about bluntness and sort of says you know that you get to a certain age and you, you don't care anymore you know and yeah. so maybe that's you know that's that's part of it you know that you yeah i think that's the um i think that's sorry i, I think that's is it the microphone yes. <laughs> a little bit closer in. Okay. Um, I think that the, um, I think that that not caring anymore, I'm going through that at the moment. Um, I don't do now a lot of the things that I did to please other people. So that's the first step, I think. And then there is that, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. Anymore. What's going to happen to me if I upset somebody or if I don't do what I'm supposed to do? Um, you know, it's, it's not really the end of the world. And I think be, having been brought up as, as a girl who was supposed to be very good and well-behaved and having been like that really for a lot of my life, um, uh, it, it's now, it's very pleasant to relax and uh, think about what I need for myself and that's that's really in many ways how children think I think that, that mm. you know it, they come first and for themselves and I think I'm certainly getting like that and I think that is a feature of of aging where um, I had this example the other day that someone told me that um, her mother, when her, when her mother's sister died and the sister lived in London and her mother lived here, that, um, she, that Kitty got the news of her mother's death and said, well, that's a great shame, isn't it? Um, I'm sorry about that, but I'm still here. And it is about changing the balance and changing about how we respond to things um, because my friend was, you know, really staggered by this. She thinks, doesn't think of her mother as being a person who thinks of herself first. But there she was. She was thinking, well, well, my sister's gone, but I'm still here and I need people to know that. Uh, um, and I think, you know, in a way that that, that is how children think. Mm. They think about themselves and um, and put themselves first, and we taught not to do that. But uh, as we get older, we do it for survival, I think, to extend our lives, to extend our our agency, as you said. The agency is the feeling of having some agency is very important. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, now, Miss Brooke, you've been a seven-year-old girl, which is why you're able to write about one with such insight, but how have you been able to get into the mind so cleverly of these two characters in their 80s? Um, thank you for saying I was once a seven-year-old. Um, <laughs> I think I, that goes without saying. <laughs> I, I, I like to think that I got into the mind of her because I'm very, very immature. Um, yeah, with these, so one of my lady characters is actually a very grumpy woman as well. <laughs> and she, she is, um, this isn't going to be played anywhere else, is it? Um, <laughs> no. She is, <laughs> she, just between us, she is um, definitely based on one of my grandparents. And she was a very, very strong, strong woman. Um, this is my dad's mum, who I loved dearly and was very, very much the matriarch. Um, but my, for, for those of you who I assume most of you haven't, um, my book Lost and Found has an older character called Agatha Panther who's 82 and an older man um, called Carl the Touch Typist who's 87. And Agatha um, just spends most of her time yelling whatever's in her brain at people. And it, it actually when I read that, that beautiful essay by Helen Garner about aging. Did anyone ever read mm. that? Mm. And she talks about this beautiful moment, which is really similar to what you were just talking about, Liz, of um, kind of reaching this point in her life where she decided to kind of let go of 
the the kind of niceness that was in her bone. She she said it in obviously a much more eloquent way than that, um, but but found this like building of a what she called a joyous rage in her, and it, she tells this story about. I think, like, basically assaulting a teenager on the street. Anyway, it's a, it's a hilarious, beautiful piece of writing. And and so, um, yeah, my, my main character, Agatha, has that feeling to her. And um, I kind of gave that to her without even really knowing it. Um, my other character, Carl, the touch typist, I think I started... I started writing him around the point where my other nan, um, who was very close to, had a stroke, and I went to visit her in in a uh, hospital in Melbourne. And I just sat with her for a little while and for a couple of weeks and went and visited her and, like, brushed her hair and did her nails. She was kind of going a bit loopy because she was on all these drugs. She kept seeing, like, little people everywhere. It was, um, it was kind of incredible to watch. Um and calling me different names. Um, but what I noticed in that moment when she'd been this woman who had I had great respect for and who I had, it was an amazing storyteller um, and I had lived this amazing life, but she was in this, she was treated just so badly by some of the nurses there. And it wasn't all of them, but it was definitely clear that she was old and sick and so didn't matter anymore and I just remember being so bloody furious about that about that and how it I could suddenly kind of woke to the to the way it was to the way that kind of played out in in everywhere um and so that kind of made me I just wanted her to get up and get out of there, you know, and that and that's where I got the inspiration for for Carl in that way when he escapes from his nursing home at the beginning. Um, but yeah, I think I was just close to my grandparents and always paying attention to them, and I think that's why why I um, I chose to write from the point of view of some of the elderly, but also I think because I think it. I think that point of view does give you a sense of freedom um, because you've lost some kind of agency. And so these, I was writing a book about death and grief and no one wants to talk about it. And so why wouldn't I give it to a bunch of people to, who had freedom within the culture to say whatever they wanted to say? And so that's, I think that's why I did it from their point of view. Mm. You said in a previous interview those positions that are the really young and the really old have a certain kind of permission to say whatever they want. So that must have given you a lot of freedom with your writing as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I said that previously. I said it better then, <laughs> didn't I? <laughs> yeah, I think, it, I, I think it did. And I think it was important for me at that point because I, I was grieving myself and I found it very difficult to write with cl true closeness to my own experience. And so they also gave me freedom. Mm. And Liz, in a review of your latest book, a critic said, Bursky reminds readers that ageing does not mean invisibility. And this happens particularly with older women, that invisibility. So why does that happen and what can we do to fight against that? Well, I think, I think it happens because we are so saturated with media and in all forms of media, visual media, um, it is the young white image which is dominant um, and so uh, other characters become invisible. Men, are, older men are also not so visible as young white men but they do have a level of visibility um, and their visibility is often quite positive. So if you think of all the language that we use about old men, they are, you know, he's a nice, decent old bloke and um, silver fox and that sort of thing. The language about women is very negative. It's an old bag, it's an old hag, it's a harridan, um, it's a grumpy mother-in-law, it's the miserable old neighbour next door. And, and all the language about women's ageing is extremely negative and hostile. Um, and so women who are not like that don't see themselves 
and therefore represented in the media. And that's the, that's the representational flattery. What you see is the tribe in which you live, but you don't see your section of the tribe um, represented in the media. And so you feel excluded from it, and therefore you feel invisible. But there's also the very physical uh, experience of invisibility, and I know that you know quite a lot of men suffer this as well. That you will be standing in a queue at the bank or at the post office or in David Jones or somewhere like this, and the sales assistant who is young will actually address the person who is standing behind you in the queue. Um, and and I think so many older women have that experience of. Um, the, the, the sales assistant or the bank teller will look elsewhere before they come to you. Do they think we have more time? Actually, we don't. We're just as busy as they are. And um, so they will, they will just not see you. And you can actually see and feel people not seeing you mm. as you get older. Mm. Um, I don't think there'd be many women, certainly not my age, and probably some quite a bit younger, um, who haven't had that experience. Um, so, yeah, we feel invisible because there aren't, there aren't stories about us. Mm -hmm. and, and it is, that's why I'm so keen on the creative arts as a way of, of getting rid of this, this uh, absence of, of images. That, um, that's why I write stories about it. And that's why I get very, very excited when I see stories on television about it or find other books about older women because it's that's... That speaks to the inner self. The books, books speak to the inner self. That's what I tried to do, to, uh, to present a, a sense of recognition and of possibility. And that's, that's what the arts can do through, through music, through art, through photography um, and performance. Um, and I think that this is a way of, of raising people's self-esteem as they're ageing, making them feel that they are part of the tribe, that they are represented. And it's not all about young people. Um, and that's the only way I think that we will get through the invisibility. It's no good just saying, oh, no, you're not invisible. Sometimes when I go and speak to groups of women, a woman will say, well, if I want people to look at me, I'll put on a red hat and, lip, uh, and red lipstick. But it's not about people looking at you. It's about being seen. Mm -hmm. And being seen is not the same, same thing mm -hmm. as being looked at. Think it'll, do you think it will change or is changing now as baby boomers get older? <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is that, that, that the baby boomers are so unpopular, aren't they? <laughs> I, I'm yeah, too old I, to be a baby boomer. I, so. I was thinking about as a, you know, a, a kind of market force. You well, know. I think that's true, but, uh, but I also think that there are, are a lot of baby boomers who are desperately trying to look young. And, and that's not particularly helpful. Mm. You can only look young for so long, and sometimes it doesn't work very effectively anyway. Why is it not possible for us to live in our bodies? I mean, I'm the future for all of you, unless you're younger <laughs> than me. <laughs> you're all going to get be there. Thank you, but that's the fact. You know, my wrinkles, the fact that I have to stand up and move about and my joints don't work properly and um, I'm, I'm quite often grumpy, uh, this, is, this is you. And uh, so get over it and uh, start enjoying it and admitting how it feels and be ready for it. And, and think about who you want to be when you're old. I'm sorry, I'm not meaning to personalise this too much, but, but that's what it is about. Why are we so scared of it? We're all going to die sooner or later. Goodness, you might die before you get to my age or, be, you know, or be, live 20 more years after this. But um, it's just the stereotypes are so harsh and negative and they're worse about women than they are about men. Men are somehow, well, they're men, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so it's important to see ourselves and our lives, whatever we may be, uh, whatever age we may be, reflected in the books we read. But surely it's also important for young people to see realistic representations of older people leading dynamic, interesting, and satisfying lives, both in books and in movies and so on. Would that not change that attitude? 
Well, I hope it would. I think it would take time. And I think if, you know, we write about, we talk a lot about um, younger people and, and getting into what the child needs to to be able to see about themselves and, and to express themselves. But um, I think that if, if more producers and publishers and writers and artists would think about, well, growing old can't be all that bad. If we, how can we portray it um, in visual terms on the screen or on the page or whatever to show it as a part of life and not as a path to death? Um, I think that that might be uh, more helpful. I think of what Brooke said about her, her nan and her grand grandmother and and how inspiring those women have been for her. Um, and she had wonderful examples. Well, don't we all want to be wonderful examples for our grandchildren? Um, why don't we think of that more than about the, the negative side of aging and about the assumption that we will all lose it because a lot of people in their 90s die with, live with, um, you know, very alert and active Lives. I was talking to a woman of 91 the other day who was just getting down off her tractor, <laughs> which she drives regularly and services herself. So, but how often do you see something like that? Never. I'm quoting Canadian writer Margaret Atwood here. Another belief of mine that everyone else my age is an adult, whereas I am merely in disguise. So, Beth, I'm wondering if that's something you can relate to. Did, were, did you ever imagine yourself at, say, 30 or 50 and expect an actual separate grown-up person? And you said that you couldn't wait to be older. And were you who you were when you got there, who you thought you'd be? No, still, <laughs> still not. <laughs> um, I, can, I can remember thinking 24 was so old mm -hmm. and, you know wanting to be there but not, you know, kind of thinking I would know everything when I was 24. Um, I still don't know anything. <laughs> um, I, I've forgotten your question now. Did you ever I'm like, they're not a very good example for age. <laughs> yeah. How's that memory going there? Did you ever imagine yourself at a certain age when you were younger, say 30 or 50, for example, and ex to this actual separate grown-up person. No. Um, and I don't know... Um, I, I remember thinking, you know, we have all these markers. You know, you sort of think, okay, at, uh, you know, 13, I'll, you know, I'll be a teenager. 20, I'll mm -hmm. do certain things. Uh, so I remember getting, uh, getting to 30 and thinking, you know... Um, I'm going to be older than Jesus in one year's time. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> and, but I also think, you know, there is a, uh, the kind of present continues, you know, if you, if you live in the present, you know, so we project forwards and we project backwards. And I, you know, I've done my fair share of that, um, having written a memoir <laughs> um, and written about three generations of women, you know, as a, a, a quite a young writer at my, my first book. Um, you know, so I've, I've done that projecting forwards and backwards. But when I think about the way, you know, um, <laughs> the way I've lived my life, you, you often have, you know, there are problems or challenges for each period. You know, so it's not that you want to, you know, so I think when, when I get to Liz's age, you know, I want to be just like you. <laughs> but, you know, there, there are certain kind of uh, challenges and, and joys that you have which are particular to that age, just as, you know, you did when you were a seven-year-old, that you had those and when you were a 20-year-old. And you kind of, and I think I've spent, you know, a lot of my life kind of dealing with the kind of challenges of the present. You know, so at the moment, you know, I'm a lecturer, um, not writing very much, um, you know, working on a lot of students' work. And I sort of think, you know, that is the present, you know, and that's what I, I have to do now, and it will change. You know, so this idea of thinking, you know, when I get to a certain age, I'll be something, um, hasn't really been paramount for mm -hmm. me. And I think also, you know, I was trying to think about this earlier in terms of... Um, you know, thinking about the other panels, they were talking about the past. 
um, and what we learn from the past um, and, you know, what we project from uh, in, in, into the future. I was thinking, you know, one of the things that I kind of seem to have got from my childhood um, is the sense that the past is simultaneous. Mm. You know, that the, you know, and in Malaysia, like, you know, it's a country full of uh, hidden pasts. You know, so there were a lot of silenced stories around me all the time, uh, which could not be spoken. So, you know, if you if you uh, spoke, a certain, you know, if you talked about certain riots uh, at a certain time, which happened, you know, just a year before I went to school, coloured my whole education. But we were not allowed to speak about this because, you know, you could um, be put into prison indefinitely, you know, uh, and your prison sentence would be renewed every two years without a trial. You know, so this is what I grew up with. So we had a whole sense that history was there, it was real, and it was dangerous. And there are all these stories that you cannot speak about, you know, because the consequences are too great. But that, that unspoken past, you know, and, and also on the personal level, like, you know, there are all these stories within families which can't be spoken. Um, they, they don't go away, you know, so in, in the way that, um, you know, ghosts... Uh, haunt us, um, these unspoken narratives are there, you know, and although they might not, you know, you might not hear them with your ears, you know, you, you kind of you hear them with your body, I think. And so that, you know, so this idea of, um, you know, me having to learn about the past or go to the past or remember it um, was, you know, and I, ha I had to do that in writing the memoir, you know, I had to fact check. But a lot of it, you know, I, I recognized it as a presence that was always there. And, and I guess, you know, that, that, that idea of like thinking, you know, that there is a fullness to the present moment that um, means that, you know, the future and the past are both there. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. exactly, exactly. I'm just going to read uh, a couple of lines from Wayne Price's book that I didn't get to in the one on... Um, uh, on the past because it seems very uh, pertinent to what we're saying now. Uh, his character Luke says, the years make Russian dolls of our lives, nesting oneself inside the other, a neat coffin family of near identical forms. Habits needs errors that get heavier with the decades, more full of rattling ghosts. Inside we go, oneself after the other and each one forever. So, Liz, do you think that's what we're like? We just build up all these different Russian dolls with each of our little lives and each of our little selves in there that we carry that past around with us? Yes, I think, I think that really sums it up it beautifully. It really does. And you go back and think of the different stages of your life and see how these various shells have, have formed around you and are in, can be in different colours and mean different things. Um, I think that we talked a lot about uh, the past today and in previous sessions, but it's always with us. It's never going to go away. We're always affected. I think Wayne has said this when he's spoken earlier. Um, it's always part of who we are, and, and it needs to be. It, it, is, it is very important. Um, I certainly feel like the... the Chinese dolls because they you know they're sort of that shape they have very big bottoms <laughs> and, um, and and I particularly like that image which is the sort of it's like being protected by the different layers of yourself mm. I think mm. yes yeah. uh, Brooke in your lovely book Lost and Found there's such a beautiful line it says how do you get old without letting sadness become everything I want to know if you've got the answer to that. <laughs> yes, I do. No, I don't um, at all. I, it's really interesting talking about those concepts of different selves because that is so true. I, when I realised I was going to be on a, on a panel about ageing and knowing that I'm the youngest person, I'm never the youngest person ever, so this is like really lovely <laughs> to be considered young, I started thinking about aging for women in general you know and that from a really early age I think we're really we're really hyper aware of the concept of aging and even at my age I'm 38 and there's there's little little kind of nuances to that kind of aging process that I'm really hyper aware of and that have had a real impact on me 
remember I turned, I think it was about 35, 36, and I noticed that I was, I, I just felt this panic and kind of constant panic about something that I didn't really know what it was. And it made me make really terrible decisions about men. <laughs> and and it... <laughs> um, that never stops. <laughs> Take my word really? for it. Liz, I want to be you. <laughs> um but I did, and I realized it was because I could feel this, like, this barreling, this looking down the barrel at the age of 40, which is, it's still young. <laughs> and, but I knew, there's, I knew that everything around me had told me from, I was, from when I was really young that, that when a woman reaches 40 years old, she basically may as well just fall into a volcano. Like, she's <laughs> dead now because she can't reproduce unless she's kind of lucky. Um, she's she's on the downward spiral beauty wise you know and so you s it's a really really interesting age to kind of battle with in my brain and and become okay with it and not um uh not not f kind of get sucked into those societal expectations it's really really difficult so i think um I don't even know what the question was. Did I answer it? <laughs> How do you grow old without letting sadness oh, yeah, become Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, you just get really sad. No, um, I think my nan did it really, really well um, because she, she was a very sad person, but she, she was able to, do, to, to live both ways, you know, to, concurrently. And I... I don't think there's such a thing as living a kind of happy life. Um, I was talking to Beth about this earlier. It, we we get sold this real kind of positivist, um, happy ending, searching for happiness thing. And I think it's probably an American influence where we're always looking for to be that happy person forever. And I just don't think that's that's fair on us. I think the the best kind of way of not letting sadness become everything is is trying to find some some kind of place of contentment between happiness and sadness you know and um that's the best answer i can come up with i think there's a difference in sadness as you get older um that the nature of sadness changes so you come to more experiences you have more experiences of grief and of regret i think they're really important grief is obviously important we don't argue with that but i believe that um regret is really important i don't believe what edith piaf would have <laughs> told me about no regret no regrets i think i think that regret is important because we learn about ourselves through it we learn where we've gone wrong where we stuffed up where where we neglected someone where we haven't done things as we should have done and and that is an enriching experience so i think the older you get the more you learn to live with regret and what that creates is is what I'm calling in something I'm writing at the moment everyday sadness and that is a sort of comfort because it, it doesn't make well for, I have to speak personally here it doesn't make me miserable it makes me feel that I am appreciating more of what's happened in my life and the people that I have had close to me and I am sad that I didn't you know make make more of those experiences when I could have done but at the same time they're there those people those things that happen so this everyday sadness is quite quite comforting to reflect upon and I think you know sadness ca can be positive in the long run it can teach us about ourselves and help us to live with ourselves and I do think that it it's not like being sucked down into the volcano but it's about a broadening I think and not being frightened of being sad or um, or, or miserable or old or whatever it is about using it to enrich your life that's that's what I'm feeling about sadness at the moment but it's there every day but it's important that we hang on to it's a it. valuable resource Mm. Maybe it's also the way that we, you know, that we are taught to think about those categories. 
Um, I remember that quote by, um, I think it's the Dalai Lama who says, you know, why, you know, why are Western people miserable all the time? You know, and it's because you think you need to be happy and healthy all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, when actually, you know, the yin-yang symbol, the kind of the darkness in the light, the light in the darkness is a much more, um, you know, it's, it's a way to enter into the world and not be so frightened right from the beginning. I mean, we were talking about this earlier about, you know, losing people and how, you know, when, when you have grief, it's as though... Um, you, ha you have it, you have the memorial, and then like it has to go somewhere. You know, you have to get over it as though it's a kind of illness. Mm. It's a kind of disease. Um, when actually, you know, we were saying that, um, you know, grief doesn't leave. Yeah. It kind of, it, it changes and it becomes something else. Um, but it's always there, you know, and, and in the same way, um, you know, in, in the way that I was talking about my childhood, it's this idea that the kind of the dead and the spirits and, you know, the ghosts, um, they, they're just there um, with the living, you know. So, I mean, we used to freak ourselves out about ghost stories, you know, like um, my school was haunted. Um, but it's also, there's a kind of co-presence and an acceptance of the co-presence of the things that you don't understand. And, you know, so you, you can't make sense of that grief when, you know, it first happens. But you live with it and it becomes something else. So, you know, maybe that it's, it's actually our understanding of um, what it is to be happy or what, what it is to be sad or what it is to be healthy that actually is the problem, you know, not actually the thing itself. And, and if we didn't have the sadness, how could we fully appreciate the, the happiness, the happiness of the past and the happiness of the present? Indeed, we're probably going to have to move to questions soon, but just one last one for you at the previous panel talking on children, child and childhood and writing for children. They were talking about the value of uh, imagination and hanging on to imagination and Einstein himself said that imagination is more important than knowledge. So I'm thinking is that, how do you all feel about that? Do we need to cling on to our imagination more and foster it more? Liz, you can start. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I think that's really important to imagine the future, especially as you get older, and you don't have to imagine it in a negative way. You can imagine it as being different and challenging and rewarding. I, I do think we need to hang on to that child in ourselves, uh, in, within ourselves, that is always looking for what's next and what am I going to do next, and um, am I going to be cleverer than this, am I going to be cleverer than him or her, and what am I going to do and what am I going to be? And, and that's that's a life force I think imagination is a life force and yes we need to hang on to it yes what would you say about imagination um, I I always think of um, Sherman Alexi <laughs> and there's that great um, he quotes a poem and I can't you know like I'm glad I'm on the age panel actually because uh, I can't remember the name of the author that Sherman Alexi <laughs> quotes but he he talks about how you know, one of the things that he had to deal with was coming out of the reservation of my mind. Ah, yeah. And I often, often think that, you know, the, about this, the, the cage of my own mind. You know, so when I, you know, when I was a child, um, you know, I was educated a certain way. Um, and, you know, I, I, could, I was educated in a way to think about the world. Um, you know, so Catholic childhood, um, Chinese in Malaysia, you'll never be prime minister. Um, it's in the constitution. <laughs> um, you know, so there, there are all these kind of limitations of how you could think. And I remember, you know, thinking, you know, when I came to Australia to study and, and went to Fisher Library at Sydney University and, you know, read a lot of uh, about my uh, country. Um, and it's so hard to come out of that, the cage of your mind. So I think, you know, imagination is, you know, definitely something that's under attack. You know, we've got the economic rationalist cage of our minds at the moment, I think. <laughs> you know, that, that we think, you know, there is one way to live and one way to be happy. Um, and so, you know, it's something that needs to be nurtured and protected, but also kind of, you know, expanded in some way or, or kind of being, you know, with an awareness that 
there are borders to that imagination that yes, we have. Yes, I think so. That, 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 to imagine something beyond what you are, um, which is accessible, is incredibly important. Any thoughts, Brooke, before we go to question? Oh, I, I second everything. No, I, um, I think it's hard and it's work, but you need to do it. And I think for myself, I... I, my life just wouldn't be content without it. I would feel very disconnected um, if I didn't mine that side of myself kind of consistently. But it, but it's it's not like it. It does feel like sometimes that it is work to do. I, I think it's quite hard work, and it, it trying to. It's not that you always want to be living in the future, but. You have, to, you have to have this awareness of the present, but it is, it is hard work to, to go inside yourself and, and imagine being different, imagine ways out of situations that might come up on you as you get older. It's, it's really important. It's hard work, yes. Mm. We're so not afraid of hard work, though, are we? No, that's no. women, aren't we? <laughs> so there's some great advice from the panel. Tend and foster your imagination. Now, do we have any questions? Yes, one right at the back. Uh, as you uh, reflect on the variances and vagaries of ageing, are you able to recognise in yourselves now the part of you that never actually grew up? And has it helped or hindered your writing? <laughs> Who'd like to take that one? <laughs> okay, I will. Um, yes, there are lots of bits of me that have, that have never grown up. There's, there's the um, angry little girl. Uh, sorry, Brooke, I'm the one that stamped on the snails <laughs> to hear them go squish. So she is still there, and so is the one that thinks the whole world is against her and it, that, you know, everybody hates her, and so she'll just go in a hole and bury herself. Um, uh, and she is there. She's always there. Not something I really want to preserve, but... Um, yeah, I think there's some... Actually, when I... No, I've said that. I think that's really negative. <laughs> but, um, yes, that's the little persons that are still there in me. Yeah, I think this, the snail girl is still there. <laughs> I, uh, and I think that's what keeps my kind of need to write going, is that curiosity of tiny weeny little things tiny weeny little details I think that what is what keeps me interested in the page and interested in my own mind and interested in what other people are thinking about and so I think that's such a huge part of how we kind of code childhood is curiosity and and that is it, it borders on um, kind of nosiness with me, um, but I am insatiably curious about people, and that, and she's just never going to go anywhere unless I um, get dementia. So. <laughs> she might meet another friend then. Yes. <laughs> Beth, do you have any thoughts on that little person inside you that never grew up? Yeah, that's the one that, you know, always heads for laksa, <laughs> wherever I am. <laughs> the eat first, talk later one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of, one of the interesting things about getting older um, is that, you know, when you look back at the, the kind of the preoccupations of, um, you know, what I was writing about as a young writer in my 20s, you know, or even as a teenager, um, I see that pattern kind of developing over work, you know, over the last 20 years. Um, so I think, you know, definitely what Liz said, you know, the kind of angry child or the confused child or the child who was, you know, left waiting at school for three hours until eight o'clock at night because, you know, your dad forgot you, <laughs> lost and found, um, is still there. You know, and I think, you know, as, um, as writers, we do kind of you know, work out, try and work out all of these experiences um, as, you know, as we go get older and, and make meaning of things. You know, I, I don't think we find answers to them, but, you know, it, it's just curious to see the, the different ways of approaching, you know, what might be the same, the same kind of um, experience. Yeah. Do we have any others? Ah, just over here. Thanks. I wanted to ask you about as writers who are ageing, as we all are, do you have any thoughts about how your style changes as you age and particularly 
do you think that there is for there might be for you or for women writers generally a kind of late style in the way that Saeed talked about with creative people? Um, yes, I think so, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I've worked out yet what it is. Obviously, I do feel that my style has changed, my genre has changed, um, my experience as a writer has changed, and uh, I think that I think it's hard to tell this in yourself. It's almost to me as though other people would be able to determine that better than I could. Um, because you, you can't, you, you see what you're doing in the moment. I certainly try not to look back too much on what I've written because um, I might hate it. And um, so it, it's hard for me to tell. I can only say that I hope that I hope that I've improved as a writer, that I've become more sensitive and um, nuanced as a writer. And whether that is part of my style or not, I, I don't know. I think only someone who read their way through what I've written would be able to determine that. I do think late, late style, obviously I do think that exists. Simone de Beauvoir said that um, most of the writers whom we remember wrote their most memorable works after they were 60. So hopefully <laughs> hopefully but I do think it's very hard to assess yourself mm. just thinking actually of oh sorry Brooke were you gonna you know of the books that I love of Philip Roth you know are the last three novels uh, John Burgess you know the luminous um, latest um, uh, later books um, and but I you know I agree with Liz I think it's quite hard to look back and and um, think about how your own style. I, I think I've probably gotten more tangled in Rococo as I you know, <laughs> <laughs> tangled. Um, I have had people say to me, um, you know, because the, the book of short stories that I've just um, published with Vagabond Books were written over a period of 30 years. Um, so there, there are stories in there that came out of writing exercises from when I was an undergraduate at university, you know, as well as stories that I finished a few months ago. Um, and, um, you know, so the memoir came out two years ago, and then now this collection of stories that really spans, you know, quite a long period came out. And somebody, um, somebody said to me, reading the stories for the first time, um, said, uh, after reading the memoir, um, said, you're very dark. I hadn't realized how dark you were because the memoir's funny and, you know, um, and in a very different genre and style. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know about the... Um, um, I, I, it's also different, like, if you're, if you're writing within different genres, maybe. Um, so that's a, a long way of saying don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you recognize that, the, the darkness when it was said to you that... Um, yes, um, and, but for me that's just me as well, and for me the memoir was quite dark, you know, and, but people pick up on, you know, the food and the, the, the attempts at humour um, in it, um, and I, actually when that person uh, said to me, you know, you're quite dark, um, and, and you don't seem to be in life, uh, which is quite nice, I guess. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, I said, um, I'm pretty weird, was what I answered, you know, without thinking. <laughs> and so, and, but I think that weirdness and, and that sense, and what I mean by weird is a sense of being an outsider and always being, you know, a bit strange, like being an old child, you know, so maybe I'll be younger as I get older. Um, but I think that weirdness and, and being out of kilter with the world is probably something that, you know, I've kept with me the whole way through. What about you, Brooke? Have you noticed a change since the <laughs> snail diary? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> oh, I mean, the only thing I can probably add, because I'm so, so much at the very beginning of any kind of career I'm going to have, um, is that I also find it very difficult to kind of look back on previous work and I the way I've done that I mean the amazing thing about getting a book published is that you contractually obliged to not touch it anymore so that's kind of nice and I try I have I've been looking through it recently because um it's 
there's been a film option taken on it and so I'm I'm having to read it again and I'm trying to be really kind to myself and go okay Brooke this is this is a time capsule this was you you know four or five years ago this is this is what you're capable of then and now you're different it's okay um but it's it's very very difficult I think and I don't know how I'm going to deal with that over a career I might just maybe stop we'll see <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. It's been absolutely wonderful listening to all of you and all your great wisdom. Please join me in thanking Brooke, Beth and Liz. Creative Conversations, a podcast from the China Australia Writing Centre, is brought to you by Curtin University in Perth, Western Australia, and Fudan University in Shanghai. The podcast was produced by Glyn Greensmith and Paul Clifford. Matthew Liam Nicholson and Patrick Liddell composed the music, and we'd like to thank our centre's program director, Dr. Lucy Dugan. To keep up to date with the China Australia Writing Centre, you can follow us on social media or sign up to the newsletter on our website. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversations. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a rating and a review, and feel free to contact us with your ideas and feedback so we can keep this creative conversation vital and ongoing. Until next time. <laughs>